The name Crazy Town itself reveals a little bit of the inspiration. The three of us all kind of walk around in this world looking at things and thinking, that's utterly insane. But I think a lot of other people feel that same way, and it's almost like a bit of a balm or some kind of, you feel some relief that other people are actually thinking this way and seeing the world this way. You are listening to the Post Growth Australia podcast, the one podcast where size don't matter and where better is better than bigger. Hello, Mark. Welcome back to season five. Hello, Michael. It's good to be back for yet another season. This is this is exciting times. Did you have a long enough break? Never a long enough break. No, no. <laughs> I certainly didn't. There's no such thing as a break when you're an activist of sorts, because there's always something to get your teeth into in these interesting times we're living in. Um, and this is actually a nice part of activism, because you get to talk and vent and rant and all the things that you can't really do when you're talking to people <laughs> who you're trying to be nice to and influence. But as you've alluded to, you know, taking a break from a podcast isn't time off for an activist. So it might be good just to touch base on a couple of the things that we've done over the last couple of months before I very excitedly introduce our very, very special guest for this episode. So Mark, what have you been up to the last couple of months? Oh, I've been up to all kinds of projects. One of the issues that I've been looking at, of course, is um, getting houses off the gas and trying to improve that process and talking to builders and developers who are constructing new builds about offering that option to their customers and looking at how we can get more heat pump installations and things like that in Albany. It's really good to hear in Victoria that they've actually uh, banned gas on all new homes. That's a huge step forward for Victoria, but we've got a long way to go here in WA. So we're still kind of pushing that issue. And then, of course, underlying all of that, there's the housing crisis coupled with the rapidly worsening environmental crisis and the, the question is is how do we tackle the housing crisis in a way that's sustainable that we can still get our emissions down so that's been interesting talking to lobbying uh, politicians i've written an article that's doing the rounds um, with town planning rebellion and we're looking at trying to transition australia away from a culture of development for capital gains towards more of a build-to-let culture, uh, more public housing. I think there's a link, isn't there, to that in the previous episode to that article. We'll do a link to it we'll anyway. We'll do another one. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no such thing as overkill. Yeah, and of course the holistic activism stuff is continuing as well. And that's very important because we absolutely need to change our approach to activism and to the world in general if we want to get through and out of this. Did I say it's a rapidly worsening crisis? I think I did, didn't I? I thought it was getting better. But, uh... <laughs> We've got some... The stats have got considerably worse since season four. So, you know, we have coffee for season five. We'll be drinking whiskey for season six. And Ouija board for season seven. <laughs> yeah, Ouija board for season <laughs> seven. Yeah, that's right. Anyway, over to you. What have you been up to? I never thought you'd ask. <laughs> well, firstly, I've been involved in a 
outreach campaign for Sustainable Population Australia, who also support this podcast. That's involved Catch Up TV, uh, content seeding, or all, all the annoying ads. Spa has entered that bandwagon because that's how you get the message out there. It's progress, mate. <laughs> but um, that has resulted in nearly two million impressions. That's that's very impressive. That's a really good outcome. It just goes to show, doesn't it? If you if you target the media in the right way, yeah, you can get a lot of impressions. Yeah, mm. ad- advertising is annoying, but it has its place when the message is good. It's the nature of the beast, isn't it? <laughs> it certainly is. I also had an article in a Population Media Centre blog, and what that was an attempt to do was to bring together all the information that I've absorbed over the years of how population growth can actually exacerbate and contribute to wealth inequality and poverty, that they're not distinct issues. So there needed to be some work in bringing together, say, the witch's hat theory from Kelvin Thompson, um, some of the issues of like the proletariat and population growth from Herman Daly and um, the observations from Karen Schrog. Bring them all together in one piece. So that's got published and has done the rounds. And um, also we both have had our music played on Freedom of Species, uh, which is an animal rights based program on 3CR. It's a fantastic uh, program and it's also a podcast as well they make it into a podcast afterwards and it's really lovely to have our music played isn't it and it reminds me the first ever single i released back in 2010 with uh, shock octopus was called the safe room and that song was about um well the apocalypse and what happens when corporate greed makes everything so fucked up that um, there is no safe place, not even for the billionaires that cause the issues in the first place. And at the time, it was considered a little bit, um, what's the word, overly doom and gloom. Oh, Michael, we will solve all of these problems in time with the right technology. There are people more intelligent than you out there who have got this under control. They all said that back in 2010, didn't they? innocent days. And, um, you know, I'd love to be feeling smug at the moment, but being smug requires those same people contacting me and say, Michael, you were so right and we're so wrong so I could ride hide on a Cassandra complex. But they're being eerily quiet at the moment, so... (sighs) Yeah, it's a strange paradox, isn't it? You're wanting to feel smug, but the price of that smugness is knowing that the climate and ecological emergency will probably kill you. <laughs> so you know, it's it's a, it's a, it's what is known as a double-edged sword. <laughs> Thinking about it again, I probably would have preferred to be have incorrect yeah. thematically in that song. So we can say more in the outro, but any intro esque words before we introduce our very special guest, Mark. Are you going to play your song Safe Room on this episode? Oh, thank you for asking. I might. You should. You take the opportunity. <laughs> oh, twisted my arm. You can't can't say it, listeners, but here's Mark twisting my arm. Oh, okay. It's okay, listeners. We only have a finite amount of mu- music between us that we will thrust upon you. This is actually a really good song, though. Safe Room is an excellent song, as it deserves to be listened to. But yes, no, our guest is... I love our guest. Rob Dietz is one of the three hosts of 
the Crazy Town podcast. Now, you probably heard me during season four praising Crazy Town podcasts a lot. Uh, to me, they're the standard bearers of <laughs> degrowth podcasting. And it comes down to the fact that they're just so adept at mixing humour with stark reality, plus so much education. Like, I've listened to episodes on how the road network started and why we become car dependent, how air conditioning started and the relatively benign reasons at the time of where it's led us. And you really feel like you're flying the wall listening into a conversation, but a really fun conversation. It's just brilliant. They're from the Post Carbon Institute. I first came across PCI back when I was uh, doing it ourselves liaison uh, for the post-growth alliance and i've been meaning to interview pci and i was delighted that they have a podcast and so i, I love these opportunities where hosts can talk to host because <laughs> both parties love talking in the meantime i really do hope you enjoy uh, pgap's interview with rob deets from crazy town podcast from post carbon institute and uh, we'll be back to say a few words in about 50 minutes or so. Hello, Rob Dietz. Welcome to PGAP. How are you? Oh, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on the program, Michael. It's been an absolute delight uh, listening to you on upon the wireless <laughs> for the past year and then finally um, seeing you virtually in person. Rob, just very quickly, tell us a little about yourself, your passions and what drives you. Uh, well, thanks for uh, starting with the most difficult question of them all, right? Uh, trying to understand myself. I definitely love playing and exploring in the outdoors, um, especially with family and friends. And I think maybe... Maybe that's the connection to nature uh, that got me into caring so much about the environment. And from there, I've had a really fun career in uh, environmental science, conservation biology, and ecological economics. I think the really amazing thing that happens when you start diving into both environmental and social sciences is you get this systems viewpoint. It's kind of like uh, looking at the big picture and how something over there really affects something over here. And you can do all these things like trace energy flows through through a bunch of subsystems. You can uh, look at feedback loops. You can map out all these relationships between players in the system. And it's, it's just a fascinating thing to to study and contemplate. And it's so important for the future of uh, both humanity and all the other creatures that we share this planet with. So I uh, love doing that. I'd say that more than anything drives me is just that concern for having a, a healthy, happy future for all. And uh, you've taken your suite of expertise and passions uh, to the Post Carbon Institute, where you are the program director. Now, give us a little bit of a rundown of PCI and a history of past or current projects and campaigns which you have directed. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah, happy to. Although I don't know if there's anything that, that uh, I would say it's just me directing. I mean, we're a definite team and everything we do is a team effort. We were founded in 2003, so this is our 20th anniversary year. It's uh, kind of a big thing, at least to me, that, that we've survived and thrived for this long. Uh, the mission of the Post Carbon Institute is to help lead the transition to a more resilient, equitable, and sustainable world. And we do that by providing individuals and communities with, with the information that they need in order to understand all these interrelated crises we have, crises in the ecological, economic, energy, equity realms. Or the vision that we see is we're hoping for a world of resilient communities and localized economies that can thrive within ecological bounds. So that, that's kind of the, the big view of what we're about at Post Carbon Institute. As far as projects go, uh, I would have to start with resilience.org, which is our uh, kind of online journalistic hub uh, for articles and other information resources. The, they really do two things. The first thing they do is they help explain our predicament. They help people understand why we're in this overshoot situation where collectively we are over-consuming planetary resources. Uh, the second thing we do is we offer responses to that predicament, uh, hence the name resilience, uh, which is really what we believe in, is trying to build community resilience. So we have a lot of articles that uh, help people find sustainable and equitable ideas for, for running, uh, running things as opposed to what we've had. And one of the things I love with resilience.org, we offer a, a, a daily digest and a weekly digest. So I get the daily digest, which sends a summary of, of five or six articles per day to my inbox. That's one of our, our big projects that, that has probably our biggest audience. Uh, we also uh, write uh, a lot of books and reports. It's been a pleasure to work with various authors. Uh, I often serve a, a bit of an editorial role. So I've gotten to work a lot with Richard Heinberg, who's our senior fellow at PCI. And he, he wrote a book called Power, Limits and Prospects for Human Survival. Uh, that was his 14th book, the, his most recent one. And it gets to the root of why humanity has, has developed such an extractive and such an exploitative way of life. And uh, it's just one of many larger resources, like I said, books and reports that we produce. Uh, we also have an online course that's called Think Resilience. And that's about responding to our sus sustainability crises by building community resilience. And it's a really nice, tight course. It's about four hours total of, of video sessions. And you can take the quizzes and, uh, and earn a, a completion certificate going through that. And I've heard from folks who are taking it as kind of a discussion course with friends and family. So it can be a good way to, to start some much needed conversations. And then kind of uh, akin to what we're doing here with, uh, with PGAP, Michael, we also produce uh, some podcasts. We've got What Could Possibly Go Right, which is hosted by Vicki Robin, and she gets uh, wonderful guests on to explore the changes that we could make to have a more positive future. Uh, we have a limited run uh, power podcast that's based on Richard Heinberg's book. 
And then I'm most involved with, with Crazy Town, which is a podcast I developed with Asher Miller, who's our executive director, and Jason Bradford, who's the, the board president. And we tackle the delusions of high energy modernity and try to do so with a, a bit of a, a tone of, of keeping it light and, and having some humor, too. So anyone accusing you of being idle is very incorrect. And <laughs> the suite of what PCI do will be uh, typed out lovingly in our show notes. I will highlight later was very excited to see that Crazy Town was hosted by Post Carbon Institute. My colleague at work got me into Crazy Town last year and I've been hooked ever since. Um, I'm not just saying that. <laughs> it's, a, it's true. It's my go-to. Um, what was the inspiration behind Crazy Town, uh, your reflections on the journey taken with Asher and Jason? And uh, while we're here, well done on getting on the top 1% of global podcasts, according to Listen Notes. Oh, wow, I didn't even know that. Uh, so that's kind of cool. The inspiration uh, for getting Crazy Town going, well, we're in our fifth season, so I got to go back five years ago to uh, to recall. But I have to say, before starting work on the podcast, I wasn't even a podcast listener, but Asher was a fan. And uh, we got to talking, he and I and Jason, and thinking, well, this might be an area where we could add some value to the uh, to the landscape. So, you know, we, we didn't feel like people were hearing enough about humanity's overshoot predicament, what's going on, how to think about it, and probably most importantly, how to step out of it. Uh, we also thought the three of us could explore these, you know, admittedly very heavy, difficult to take topics, uh, often labeled as doomer, uh, that, that we could explore them in a kind of a lighter way with lots of jokes, with laughing together, because that's how the three of us process a lot of the that pain in the world anyway. Uh, and so we had a hope that through that laughter, it would be an easier way for people to uh, start considering these cascading crises of our times. Um, I also think... The name Crazy Town itself reveals a little bit of the inspiration. Um, the three of us all kind of walk around in this world looking at things and thinking, that's utterly insane that that's how we're behaving, that that's the infrastructure we have, that that's the way we treat energy, that that's the way we treat each other. We were kind of thinking like, you know, it's either we're crazy or everyone else is crazy. And, and it, maybe it's been more of an after effect, actually, than an inspiration. But I think a lot of other people feel that same way. And it's almost like a bit of a, a balm or some kind of you, you feel some relief that other people are actually thinking this way and seeing the world this way and, and trying to propose uh, some ideas for something different and do some different things out there. So uh, and, and I think that's even become more the inspiration is hearing from guests that oh, I'm so glad that you guys are are addressing these topics. And uh, I thought I was alone out here and feeling kind of crazy. And uh, it's good to kind of have a, a little bit of community around it. I remember when I heard Crazy Town, it reminded me of a band, I think, called the same thing back in the late 90s. He had the song Butterfly. The video was a 
shirtless guy hopping around. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the the three of us had forgotten it, but they were kind of a one hit wonder and we had forgotten about that song. But uh, I promise you, you will not see the three of us jumping around shirtless. So uh, no, you don't have to cover your eyes or anything. <laughs> That's the great thing about podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> The host can be wearing anything in Underwiser. What keeps me coming back to Crazy Town compared with the other podcasts of similar subject matter, including my own, (laughs) is a balancing act between discussing big, serious issues, as you said, with a degree of levity and humour. This has also been a modus operandi of PGAP. uh, When I began this back in 2020, so you're one season ahead of me, um, Back when I perceived the Greek degrowth movement to be a little dry and academic. Now, I believe the movement generally has come a long way since then in terms of its broader appeal. Uh, But any reflections you have on striking the balance between topicality and humour, especially when discussing existential issues. And I might just say that uh, my co-host, my recent co-host, Mark, has um, recently debuted a comedy um, topical comedy show for the Adelaide Fringe called The Boomer and the Doomer. Yeah, so there's a, a lot out there that's trying to uh, make the end of the world hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you see that from, uh, you know, professional Hollywood types like Adam McKay and, and others as well. Um, I mean, I think if we can't laugh even in the darkest times, then we're losing a part of ourselves. I mean, Look, I shared Jason and I are not professional comedians, but we have an awful lot of fun with each other. Typically, before each episode, we get together in a sort of writer's room, and we, we end up cracking each other up. I mean, we, we're not writing jokes for the show. That's all kind of done uh, with improvisation. Uh, but I fear we sometimes we lose the best jokes as we're uh, as we're just trying to flesh out the topics. But of course, the point of the podcast is to provide accurate information about topics that are critical to humanity's future. So we also put in a lot of research and do uh, quite a bit of outlining for each episode. And I I have to mention our volunteer researcher Ilana Zuber. Uh, she was a listener. And just got in touch and said, hey, is there anything that I could help you guys do? And and we had been wanting to do some seasons where we kind of had a, a thematic through line for the whole season. So the last three we've done that. One was on hidden drivers that are causing our sustainability crises. The other uh, was on watershed moments in history that, that have led to uh, what we've got now. And then this current season is on false prophets, people who are promoting all the wrong ideas. And we've had incredible amount of research that Alana's done to, to help us prep for these, uh, these big seasons. But, you know, we, we like to leave a lot of room for improvisation. You know, we don't script out everything we're going to say. Uh, people obviously enjoy learning, but I think they also enjoy feeling like they're part of a conversation, maybe even in the room with us, uh, can enjoy sort of like a little communal feel with that. Yeah, I was um, talking with my uh, supervisor who um, got me onto this, 
And um, he kind of said, um, yeah, the great thing about podcasts is kind of being in a fly in the wall for uh, other people's conversations, um, which is an unusual thing because it's something we don't like to do in real life. But I think just when we're in the mood for it, it can be great. Um, now, I first came across Post Carbon Institute almost 10 years ago. Um, I was the external liaison person for doing it ourselves. Uh, an anarchist-based Australian collective who were fellow participants along with PCI for the Post-Growth Institute Facilitator Networking and Mutual Initiative Post-Growth Alliance. That is a lot of organisational <laughs> I've just checked there. Um, oh, too, you know. Um, but the main gist of this <laughs> question is firstly that I've been meaning to invite PCI and PGAP for quite some time and, yay, here we are. Secondly, <laughs> as a Post-Growth Alliance was probably... My first full exposure to the degrowth movement, why do you believe the movement is so critical and do you have any general observations on how the movement has progressed in the last decade since the PGA started? Yeah, well, thanks for bringing up the post-growth folks and and degrowth. I think it's critically important. I mean, we need to take a realistic approach to dealing with our environmental overshoot and the social upheaval that's... Uh, seems to be uh, mushrooming around the world. Uh, degrowth provides a lot of straightforward ideas that would be effective if we would take them seriously and adopt them. You know, it's about learning how to run society on a smaller energy budget and with smaller material appetite. It's also about sharing our wealth equitably. Ten years ago, I wrote a book with uh, ecological economist Dan O'Neill called Enough is Enough, building a sustainable economy in a world of finite resources. And it's essentially promoting policies and ideas for, you know, how do we have an economy that is focused on enough and focused on well-being rather than focused on always grasping for more, 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 and, you know, trying to pretend that we can grow our economies infinitely on a finite planet. Uh, We really just need a strong dose of reality. Now, you asked about how I see the movement, the degrowth movement progressing. And um, I mean, the the sad answer is not, uh, especially here in the United States. Um, We have this paradox, I guess you could call it, of needing to grow the degrowth movement. And, um, you know, there's more of a foothold for sure in Europe I'm not sure what it's like in Australia. I I would guess it's probably better than the U.S. I mean, here in the U.S., no political leader has gained traction by embracing the limits to growth. The the closest you can get is somebody touting the Green New Deal, but they always do it like this. They always say, well, we need to make a switch to a renewable energy economy and we need to grow the economy by doing that. You know, we're going to keep the growth party going. Uh, I think that's a fundamental flaw in thinking and a failure to understand just how much power we've derived from the use of fossil fuels and how hard it's going to be to suddenly uh, give up our addiction to fossil fuels and and run the economy on on renewable, you know, solar and and wind. Um, And I I just don't think our 
leaders are being uh, they're, they're not uh, they're not leading right and so it, it is up to us at a community scale and uh, you know from the people to to try to demand change but it's not you know I, I will say it's slow going here in the US for people to understand uh, and and embrace degrowth as a way forward I just listened to your episode about Bill Clinton last night and um, just in the conversation I just wondered do you reckon Bernie Sanders um, kind of flirted with degrowth a bit until he was not allowed to lead the Democrats because they're all Republicans anyway <laughs> right right I I think yeah I mean of, of national politicians he's probably the one that's uh, at least closest to getting it um, and he's Certainly a champion of, of equitable distribution of, of wealth and income. And I, I think that's a key. You know, it, it, it doesn't sound like an environmental issue, but, it, you know, these systems are all related. And um, it's pretty clear that dealing with our, our inequality would help deal with some of the power imbalances and some of the, I guess, some of the capture of government that you've seen uh, in, in this nation. Um, but yeah, I, I do think, uh, you know, Clinton and his type, which moved very much towards the center and embraced the neoliberalism as, as their uh, economic philosophy, kind of undermined a lot of the, you know, the social and environmental progress that the left was making. And yeah, it would have been nice to see uh, a candidate like Bernie Sanders get, uh, you know, get more time of day in this country. But, um, you know, a lot of people don't seem to be ready to uh, face the hard truths. And, and they are hard. I'm not, um, uh, you know, I don't want to sugarcoat it. A lot of the things that we talk about in Crazy Town and that we talk about at Post Carbon Institute on resilience.org are, are not easy topics to grapple with. But that's the situation we're in. And it, it, it means that there's a lot of work to be done and a lot of room for people to step up and do that work. I guess um, in your comments about it being very difficult work, I do personally like to make a caveat that we're talking about a degrowth future. We're not saying that it's going to be utopia. Like I don't personally believe utopia exists, not in this universe where entropy seems to be a greater force <laughs> than, <laughs> than the development of complexity but it's kind of choosing your poison so at least there's a planet still around on the other side um i'm not sure whether that's yet outlook or as well or whether i'm just particularly bleak <laughs> well no i i agree i don't believe in utopia and certainly i look around my own uh, household and entropy reigns here uh, just like it does everywhere else but the you know i think the notion of an economy that is overshooting the ecological capacity of the planet, uh, an economy that undermines the very life support systems that we all depend on. Well, the, you know, there's no good ending to that story, right? I mean, it was sort of maybe it was fun for a little while, uh, while you could kind of overconsume. But in degrowth, we have a far better future, you know, we can have a planned descent from the, you know, the energy and material highs and get back in line with 
with what nature can provide. And, you know, if, if we do that in a reasonably wise way, in an equitable way, then I think we'll all benefit. And I think we will end in a better place. So, you know, again, that's not utopia. I mean, we are humans, we're going to make mistakes, but hopefully we can work adaptively, right? You try things and when they don't work, you make adjustments. And as long as you have some guideposts around uh, sustainability and equitability, you'll end in a much better place. Fantastic. And I think this uh, is a good segue into um, kind of examining such the nuts and the bolts of the degrowth movement and the IPAT Mm -hmm. equation. Now, Rob, as you are an ecological economist, um, that's not necessarily a contradiction in terms, is it? (laughs) No, I don't think so. I think you can uh, have a foot in both ecology and economy. And uh, yeah, it makes perfect sense to me. In fact, Let me just say that when I learned of ecological economics, it was like a a total relief because I had uh, learned this economics and uh, had never seen limits to growth, had never heard of Herman Daly and his work on steady state economics. And and when I found out about that and I started reading some texts and talking to some uh, professors, uh, it just it blew me away. I was like, wow, this is what we should have been learning in college all those years ago. And yeah, totally changed my outlook, changed my career. Um, so yeah, highly recommend uh, everybody jump down that rabbit hole of ecological economics. <laughs> so yes, I thought it might be good to get your opinions on the various contributors to the IPAT equation. In other words, where impact equals population influence and technology so um let's work backwards from perhaps least controversial to most controversial um what are your observations firstly on the role of technology uh some let's not say many in the broader environmental movement give the impression that a renewable energy revolution is a suitable end goal in the absence of degrowth Well, yeah, okay. So the iPad equation, right? That's basically an identity. It makes intuitive sense as well, right? That you have a certain number of people that are consuming a certain amount and using an amount of technology to do that. Look, I'm all for a transition to a renewable energy economy. Uh, I think the people you're talking about who, who want to do that in the absence of degrowth or even in the presence of continuous growth, uh, you would call them eco-modernists, right? That's at least here in the U.S., that's the, I guess, title or or phrasing that's been applied to to that camp of thinking. When you start looking into it and doing the math on it, and um, we've done quite a bit of that in Crazy Town, um, and certainly in a lot of other post-carbon institute reports, you, you pretty much always find that If you're going to make this transition to an economy that's powered by technologies like solar panels and wind turbines, then you've got to scale back uh, some of the things that you are doing. Technology always has a role to play, but it's not magic. There's no rule that says technology is going to be used always to limit the consequences of the things that we're doing in the economy. I mean, just look at computer technology. You can do things more efficiently, which can save on energy and materials for, say, like an industrial process. But the very same 
computer technology allows you to be more exploitative. You know, think about uh, deploying technology to explore and recover fossil fuels, right? I mean, if you're using your technology for that purpose, then you can actually, uh, you know, have a, a, a more consequential effect, a bad environmental outcome. You know, people who always point to uh, technology to save us, I, I would say look at it really skeptically, uh, who controls the technology, who benefits from the technology, and just look at our history of it. it you know, if technology were the solution, then why are we in, why are we in this mess in the first place? Yeah, well, you know, since every given technological innovation has led us to a new problem, which has led to further destruction of the planet, uh, what makes us think that the next one's somehow going to be different? You know, it's just kind of look at the course of history, do your probabilities, you know. Chances are, yeah. in the absence of, of other stuff, you know, that's not going to be the magic bullet. Yeah, and there's a ton of nuance there as well, right? Like it's never, you, you can't take something as broad as technology and just label it good or bad, right? It all depends. It depends on who's using it, to what ends, uh, how does it affect the social systems that we live within? Uh, there's so many questions about it. Uh, that, and that's what makes me so nervous about the, you know, sort of high priests of technology that, you know, the eco-modernists who come along and say, this is the only way. We need high technology. We're going to shift to some AI-controlled, magical, super-energy future where everything's going to be green and golden. And it's like, do you have any experience with technology? When when was it so perfect? You know, let's, uh, let's just look at the nuance in it uh, and also look at the history and yeah try to be as realistic as we can about it yes i i like technology i like using it for for good things um i have some solar panels on the roof and and can share some of that electricity with my neighbors but i it's not the like you said it's not the magic bullet that's going to save everything yes we need a renewable energy economy and that's tightly coupled with we need a smaller economy very well said, Rob. Now, let's, <laughs> uh, let's look at affluence or how I interpret it, the consequences of unnecessary material consumption at the personal and societal level, as well as the role of inequality. Yeah, I mean, overconsumption is really a, a huge problem. Economists, they, they kind of like to divide the world into these categories like developed world and developing world, or they might even go as far as to say first world and third world. But I mean, how, how are you going to call uh, an economy or a nation developed when it's undermining the life support systems uh, of, of the planet? Um, I often talk about the high consuming nations or high consuming people. Those are the nations that, that need to take a hard look at their resource throughput, right? I mean, unfortunately, uh, and I'll, I'll speak as a U.S. citizen, the, you know, our goal has been to grow the economy exponentially year after year after year. Well, the, the goal shouldn't be to maximize the size of your economy or to, to churn through uh, as much resources as you can to keep your economy growing. 
the goal should be to maximize sustainable and equitable well-being. That to me seems like the, the root of it. We need to look at what provides well-being for people and at the same time doesn't uh, mess up the ecosystems that we all depend on and trying to figure out how to achieve that in a way that is sustainable, that can go on indefinitely into the future and in a way that's equitable where we all benefit. And the thing about consumption and affluence is, you know, it, it, it's pretty well documented. Once we're meeting basic needs, maybe plus a few additional comforts, consuming a lot more is not useful. Uh, it's not good for us. It's really not good for society. I, a really influential book uh, that I read years ago is The Spirit Level by Richard Wilkinson and Kate Pickett. They did a kind of an epidemiological analysis and showed that countries and states within the U.S. that have a smaller gap between the haves and the have-nots, well, they do a lot better on all kinds of social variables. Even the wealthiest in those places do better. So if the U.S. were to adopt policies that helped us have a more equitable distribution uh, of wealth and income, we'd all be better off, uh, all, all kinds of health markers. Uh, and that includes the ones who have the most wealth. So I see no reason not to go for those, those policies. Another great answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. It's it's nice to that you're so complimentary. But uh, yeah, I mean, this this kind of stuff. I researchers like Wilkinson and Pickett and like the Herman Dailies. They've been at this for decades, and we're just not listening. You know, and I, I think we need to we need to open our ears and and be more open, especially as more crises come our way. It's uh, it just seems utterly logical but you know you know that logic doesn't necessarily underpin uh all of our our governmental and business decisions imagine uh, being in the club of rome in the early 70s and how smug you'd be feeling right now that <laughs> you set's going on course well i'm right but also very depressing as well yeah yeah donella meadows is probably my favorite character from uh from the world of sustainability researchers, she, uh, you know, passed away way too young, but you know, totally influential in the limits to growth. But even to me, uh, what really resonated with me was her series of articles called "The Global Citizen." Um, you could find that archive online, and uh, she just she just got it, and she applied her systems thinking, her very astute. Uh, systems and critical thinking to all kinds of worldly issues and uh, was also a great writer. So yeah, super, super influential. And yeah, you're right. Uh, they have every right to uh, be doing it. Hey, I warned you about this a good 50 years ago, people. So we're going to save the last but not the least for the issue of population. I almost want like to have this trigger Thing that I can press on the computer so whenever the word population is mentioned I can press a button that goes do do or some other <laughs> <laughs> music right. um, dun 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 <laughs> yeah. Yeah. personally I'm very vocal in favour of population sustainability but of course I'm not blind that it remains a very controversial issue so often population is played against, say, consumption and wealth inequality as another dichotomy that is argued over. I was interested to read 
both by the late Herman Daly and by the Surviving Tomorrow blog, their perspectives that the so-called elite actually benefit from an expanding base of the landless wage and rent-dependent workers and hence why they themselves encourage larger populations. And I suppose the main thrust of the question is, do you think there's a way for all degrowthers to find at least some common ground on this part of the IPAT equation? Yeah, that's a tough one. I mean, I, I guess even getting back to the notion of population as kind of a third rail that you don't want to touch, uh, you know, I, I found that to be the hardest chapter to write uh, in the book the, that I mentioned that Dan O'Neill and I wrote together. And, you know, the, the issue there is uh, there are lots of sensitivities around it. So I think understanding that is a very first place to enter into any conversation about population. You know, you you got to look at the sordid history of of trying to limit population size and and you know kind of wrestle with that the idea that elites are out there trying to keep population growth going cuz you know it benefits them i i may be naive but i think most elites aren't that conniving and uh, you know they're not like sitting at the top of their tower planning humanity's demise and their own glorification or whatever but i i do think uh they're probably ignorant right they don't know that much about the causes of environmental problems and they don't look into those issues right they've been very successful probably in the worlds of of business and government which you can very well do without having an ecological education or knowing a a thing about energy for that matter uh, you know i think there it speaks to the necessity of 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 us having a much broader education especially those of us that make it into the halls of power kind of third part of that question about is there a way for people who who believe in degrowth to find common ground about what we should do uh, with population size. I, I think finding common ground is always tough, uh, but it's worth the effort. The evidence is pretty clear that we have too many people consuming too many resources on this planet, and it would be helpful to have a smaller population. Uh, but the first key to addressing that issue is to address overconsumption and exploitation by the wealthiest nations and people. We have a horrible history of colonialization. We have a, a, a you know, if you look at things like uh, who's produced the most emissions, who's benefited the most from past economic growth, that's where you need to start dealing with it. And I think that's the what's kind of caused some of the di- dichotomy you're talking about. It's It's kind of like, how can you go talking about overpopulation and, and trashing nations that have high populations when the real villains are the nations that have consumed the most? And I mean, you know, there's some merit behind that argument, but it's to me, it's not a dichotomy. It's a both and situation. So th- that's the first key. I mean, we're not shying away from the wealthy or the high consuming nations need to stop consuming so, so much. The, the second key, I think, is to avoid any sort of coercive means of achieving a smaller population. Uh, like I said, look at the history and how badly that's gone and what a terrible idea from the get-go. So, uh, you know, look, if we can all agree that education is important and then we can agree that equal access to education is important, well, 
there, right there, you've got the number one policy for achieving a sustainable, a sustainable population, and that's providing access to education. Uh, and, and that's a hard one to, uh, uh, you know, to, to rail against. So maybe that's the best spot for achieving, you know, some consensus or common ground as you've, as you've asked for. Yeah, fantastic. Um, uh, thank you for going into the rabbit hole with me a little bit there, Rob. <laughs> now we're on the home run now. Uh, I can let you go soon. But on PGAP, we always like to invite guests to share their personal vision in the day in the life of a degrowth or steady state future. Now, we've already agreed that um, you're probably not going to be giving the utopian future. <laughs> but um, what might some of the changes in the day of the life of your vision of a post-growth future be that causes slightly less suffering than the current one? Well, thanks for the, the good question. Um, yeah, it, trying to describe what a future in a sustainable economy would look like is often, it, it's a weird exercise because you might end up saying you know pitching some some utopia and we've already agreed that that's not what it's going to be what i've been thinking about a lot lately is the notion of slowing down and an example is uh i i sort of made a public declaration in a in a an article i wrote you know it's sort of saying what i was going to do this year in order to uh you know, try, try to promote sustainability. And one thing I said I would do is I would ride my bike more. I've always been an avid cyclist, but the, the uh, public uh, thing that I promised that I made was that I would, for one of our podcast episodes, uh, I would bike from my home in Portland down to Corvallis, roughly a hundred mile bike ride um, to do the, the episode. And I did that uh, a, a few weeks ago and it, Obviously, that slows you down compared to taking a car or a train or, you know, any motorized uh, transportation. But that slowing down for me obviously gives me more time for observation, more time uh, to connect with the landscape that I'm going across. Um, certainly provides more time and, and uh, results for fitness. And if we all kind of agreed to it, you know, I'm not saying we ditch all motorized transport and everybody can only get anywhere by walking or biking. Um, but I, I think we, if we agreed to slow things down, we would have more time for the things that we care the most about, um, like relationships and like connecting with one another and connecting with one another in places that are special to us and that uh, we would uh, have more time for those uh, for philosophizing and and uh, yeah coming up with with more solutions so uh, but you know at the same time the the reality was that I was getting passed by really large vehicles really loud vehicles made it kind of unpleasant and I thought what a tragic misallocation of resources in our infrastructure um, we could build a far more beautiful way of getting around our landscapes than what we've ended up with at this moment in time and so uh, i think we'd first have to have an agreement that slowing down is okay that's part of the whole degrowth idea that would be part of the transition to a renewable energy economy and when you do that, you open up possibilities for a, a world-class cycling infrastructure, world-class train infrastructure, and not worrying so much about, you know, big 
giant SUVs and trucks that, that guzzle a lot of gasoline. Uh, this reminds me of the realities of living in Western Australia, where, where I do. So to go to the eastern side where um, all the <laughs> real people live, according to the eastern staters, <laughs> you have to get across the Nullarbor, which is this huge expanse of desert. Now, if you don't want to fly, pretty much they've gutted all opportunities. You, you, you can drive, um, but I was driving an LPG car or, or liquid gas car and they've taken that away. <laughs> so you can only use regular petroleum because, of course, they haven't updated the infrastructure for the electric vehicles. Um, they used to have a really slow-moving train, but they've got rid of the economic options and now it's just gold class which is a cruise in wheels um <laughs> and the airplane companies got together and lobbied the governments to make boat travel interstate passenger boat travel illegal so <laughs> you've pretty much got the option of flying or nothing so i think that's you know a great uh, example of how we at least need a <laughs> transport revolution if nothing else yeah it takes us full circle back to the idea of there's a lot of work to be done to improve the material conditions that we have i mean you can imagine a, a really well-maintained good you know maybe even uh it wouldn't be very expensive train that would cross australia so that, you know, a typical person could just jump aboard and, and get across the country that way. And, and if you allocated, you know, even a small percentage of the resources that have gone into highway development and into, I mean, think how much the average family spends on cars and petrol and, and the government is spending on, on all the infrastructure. And then you've got all the sprawl that's associated with cars and the the extra infrastructure like parking structures that's just completely not needed. Um, and you can imagine a, a far more pleasant experience in the cities and the, yeah, I mean, there's a you know whole uh, different direction we could go in, in a discussion around transportation and, and urban development and that sort of thing. But it's, it's really about the decisions that society makes and, you know, we're at a turning point. We're at a time where we need to be demanding those kinds of things um, and, and finding ways to, to have an infrastructure that's commensurate with, uh, with protecting the, the natural systems that we all rely on. Now, Rob, all good things must come to an end. Uh, that includes infinite growth on a finite planet. <laughs> and that also includes our conversation. So it is with uh, a couple of welling tears that uh, I will bid you adieu and ask, firstly, how can people find out more about the Crazy Town podcast or Post Carbon Institute and Resilience.org who support the Crazy Town podcast and any future projects and campaigns on the pipeline? Well, the last thing I want to do is recommend that people spend too much time online. Uh, so uh, make sure you get outside and, and enjoy yourself in nature. Uh, but to find us, uh, check out resilience.org, uh, postcarbon.org. As I said, you could sign up for a daily or weekly digest from resilience.org. I, I love getting those articles. Uh, you can subscribe any 
podcast app you can subscribe to crazy town or what could possibly go right or or power um, and yeah we've got all kinds of cool stuff that i'm excited about in the future we have a another limited run podcast that we're going to launch uh, later this year on an indigenous and global south perspectives on on the crises of our times uh, we've got a report coming out that's looking at how the cascading crises are unfolding and in, in, in the ways we need to be thinking about them and, and mounting responses to them. And uh, we're in the very, very early stages of planning an event series that we want to run on resilience.org. So lots of exciting things in the works, uh, you know, no shortage of problems for us to focus on, but also no shortage of really smart, good responses that, uh, that we all need to be supporting. So Thanks a ton, Michael, for having me uh, on the show and for, um, yeah, the good conversation. Really appreciate it. And well done for Crazy Town Podcast making it to the top 1% of global podcasts. <laughs> this is the one time in which reaching a top 1% is a good thing. <laughs> yeah, thanks. I appreciate it. We'll get PGAP there, uh, you know, as soon as we can as well. <laughs> Fantastic. Appreciate it. Thank you, Rob. Say in here.
Postgrowth Australia podcast. Uh, I just spoke with Rob Adietz from Post Carbon Institute Crazy Town podcast. And after that, we heard a track, the first ever single from um, my band Shock Octopus, that was released in 2010, which was called The Safe Room. And a great song this is too, one of my favourites of yours. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Started off with a bang. And now we live in a very interconnected world. And as such, Rob spoke at a recent online degrowth conference facilitated by New Economics Network Australia. Um, you actually attended one or two of those didn't you, Mark? I did, yeah. It was very good. It was a degrowth week and they did a great job. There were lots of interesting webinars and talks. A lot of um, good speakers were involved, including, of course, Michelle Maloney, who's amazing and who's been interviewed on this podcast. Alex Bauman taught, who wow. was also interviewed on this podcast. Gosh, this almost feels like a who's who. <laughs> But um, yeah, no, that was really good. Uh, very interesting. Obviously, I kind of went more for the land use planning and town planning related uh, workshops because um, that's my sort of main area of interest. But yeah, it was great. Unfortunately, I, I didn't get to hear Rob's, which is unfortunate, but they're all recorded. They're all recorded and indeed will provide a link to Rob's. Yeah contribution That's a good idea. on the episode notes. Another link. We, we, we think of links as we go along. This is all <laughs> unrehearsed, folks. I, I just want to say how, how much I enjoyed that interview. It's just a feeling of um, someone else on the same wavelength as me. It's like camaraderie, you know. And I love the fact that he sees the importance of humour while at the same time um, doesn't shy away from the seriousness of the situation we're in and how we do need to look at creative ways of communicating these issues and the important role that humour can play. I love the fact that he obviously totally pushes the fact that needing to scale down and degrow has to underpin everything that we do, you know. Like, as I was saying earlier, I've been talking about, you know, getting heat pumps into into houses, but the emissions that goes into making like a heat pump is, is, is huge. And we it all has to be within the context. Everything we do has to be in the context of letting go, slowing down. And, you know, when he talks about things like, you know, world-class train travel and cycling infrastructure, you know, that paints a picture of the fact that a degrowth or a post-growth or steady-state society while not utopian, and we, we agree that we should never assume utopia because that, that in itself can be dangerous, how there are going to be huge lifestyle benefits. You know, when I travelled from Perth to Adelaide by train, it took you know, many, many hours, two nights on the train. But because I wasn't in any great rush, 
um, it was a really pleasant process. You know, it was it was nice, um, and we can create a world where we can slow down. Now, same before how we live in an interconnected world. Um, Richard Heimberg is one of the um, fellows of Post Carbon Institute. I think it was a talk from Richard Heimberg back in 2013 in Melbourne, um, organised by Sustainable Population Australia, that really pushed me into the realm of thinking about post-growth and degrowth and also joining SPA. And Sustainable Population Australia, gosh, also support this podcast. So, you Is know. that right? <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure if I've mentioned that before. Oh, well, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, Looking forward to many other quality interviews this season and to follow on the great legacy of season four. We actually hit the record number of listeners twice toward the end of season four. I mean, that's not the only records that this planet has broken, but... Yeah, well, it's good to hear that we are building up our audience and people are connecting to us. And I really appreciate all the listeners and for all of your support. Always feel free to comment and give us feedback. It's always very valued and appreciated. And I can take criticism. I, um, I'm on Twitter a lot, so I get a big hammering on there. So I can handle it. I can handle it. I really can. <laughs> really can, Michael. I can't, so I'll just uh, forward my negative feedback to you. Just forward negative feedback to me and then make me a strong coffee. Uh, uh, that sounds like a very good arrangement. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, until then, Mark, until then. Yep, see you in the next episode. And until then, listener, until then. Until then. <laughs>